Sarah Pereski was born in Ames, Iowa, and she is one of the pioneers that transformed the genre of mystery. With many, and I mean many, best-selling novels, Pereski has a way of adding her revolutionary touch to the strong female characters in her work. As a speaker, advocate, organizer, and of course author, she is multifaceted and passionate with her work and beliefs. Her latest novel is Deadland. Please enjoy. Sarah Poretsky, welcome to Creative Process. It's great to be here. Thank you. Reading from your latest novel, Deadland. I'm going to read from the beginning. V.I. is on the south side of Chicago. She is there to cheer on her young protege, Bernadine, who's been coaching a girls' soccer team in a uh, school that doesn't have a lot of financial resources. It's the end of the season. The girls came in second in a tournament, which was great because they were competing against affluent girls with a lot of extra coaching and so on. They're supposed to be getting recognition and an award in the community. So we're going to be outside the meeting room waiting for them to be called in. There's a very hot community meeting going on. The girls lined up along the wall, their faces glistening with sweat, still breathing hard. We could have won if Lorene had moved her fat ass into place to block one girl began, but Bernie silenced her. No one who plays for me calls another player a bad name, and there is only one way to lose a competition. What way is that? The girl who'd issued the insult turned her head away, but the other seven chanted in unison, dishonesty. Right, Bernie said. If you do not do your best, you are dishonest to yourself and to your team. If you do your best, you've won even if the other team outscores you. You learn from mistakes, Nespa. Losing a match is only a loss if you do not learn and grow from it. Yes, coach. Louder, you believe this. Yes, coach, they shouted. The Southside sisters had lost their match to the Lincoln Park Lions. Bernie, Bernadine Fouchard had coached them with the ardor she brought to everything in her life. The girls loved her. They'd started sprinkling their conversation with French phrases. They copied her mannerisms, the way she stood with hands on hips, the way she smacked her palm against her forehead and groaned, mon dieu. Bernie's sport was hockey. Like her father, Pierre, like her godfather, my cousin, Boom Boom, both former Chicago Blackhawks stars. Unlike them, though, even though she was a gifted player, there wasn't any way for her to make a living at the game. So she was doing the next best, majoring in sports management and playing for a Big Ten hockey team. And then there's a little bit about how she was on the South Side coaching this team. And VI says she'd come down to 47th Street to watch the 11-year-old sisters play their final match of a round-robin tournament. The South Lakefront Improvement Council Slick had helped sponsor the sisters and wanted them to take a bow following the game. Slick was holding their monthly meeting. The girls were supposed to wait in the hall until someone came for them. A woman whose tightly curled hair was dyed a rusty brown opened the common room door and stuck her head into the hall. Can you girls keep it down? Oh, are these our soccer players? Yes, Bernie said. We are a wonderful team, but we are not wonderful at waiting in the hall. When do we go in? Very soon, the woman tittered as if Bernie had made a mildly amusing joke. As she shut the door, we heard a man yelling from inside the room, You! The figure was getting an amazing amount of sound out of the toy. 
I hadn't heard her when I walked by under the viaduct but earlier in the afternoon, but she clearly had set up housekeeping there. I was trying to push Bernie along, but she was listening wide-eyed to an ominous rhythm the pianist was producing in the instrument's lowest octave. Do you hear that? she demanded. It's savage. I shook my head, uncomprehending. How are you not knowing it? It is the greatest song of the last 10 years about this woman Indian chief. Her name was Anna Kaona, and the Spanish murdered her when she wouldn't be their whore. My whole high school sang it for First Nations Day, but it's so much more than that. Like for women, when we have a march to protest rape or the horrible incel bastards, we drum and we sing it. Who is playing this song in this place? Is there a protest? Should we be joining? Bernie tried to sing, but she couldn't find her way to the pitch or the rhythm. All I could make out from her tuneless chanting were the words, savage and cruel. The pianist suddenly brought the tempo down and the music shifted from an Afro-pop beat to a heavy 3-2 meter. After a few measures, I made out what sounded like the lament from Purcell's Dido and Aeneas. I began to sing, Remember me, but forget my fate, when Bernie cut me off. No, 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 that's not how it goes. It's remember me and announce my fate. Sorry, I said meekly. I was singing Purcell's version. Who wrote the one you know? Lydia Zamir. First, she was an ordinary musician. Then she started writing songs about women, you know, like for hashtag me too. She was in love with this man. They traveled around to different rallies, and then they were shot and killed at one of these horrible mass murders. Some crétin with too many guns opened fire on them. She glared at me as though demanding that I deal with the problem of idiots with too many guns. When I didn't say anything, she said, it is very strange to hear Zamir's music like this under a railway track in Chicago. Thank you. I want to say you're such a good reader because not all writers are good readers of the, and, and singer of your work, actually. And it sets up the whole story with the sense of, from all your novels and your short stories, also your memoir, but this sense of compassion for people from all sectors of society. But I wanted to ask you, and so it just sets the drama from there. We can see, we'll have to read it to to understand what happens to this talented person who has found themselves in this situation. But I had heard you say that if your longtime character, V.I. Warshawski, were to ever pass, that you, in a sense, would cease to be. So I wonder what it is like to build over now 20 novels, a companion for life. What is it like to build that? Yes, it's an interesting question that I don't have an easy or ready answer for. When I started writing the first book, she was much more just a sketch, not really a fully realized person, because I started writing out of a desire to counter stereotypes of the roles that women traditionally played in crime fiction in particular, although really in a lot of ways in all fiction. But in crime fiction, women could be vamps, in which case they were wicked, they used their bodies to get good boys to do bad things, or they were virgins who couldn't tie their shoes without adult supervision, or they were victims, most often just victims. And so I wanted a detective who was like the women that I knew who could had to solve her own problems, who didn't need to be rescued, who could have a sex life and didn't make her a bad person. But I wasn't thinking of her as a fully developed three-dimensional person, and that happened slowly with her over a number of years as I began writing more books. I hadn't 
thought of writing a series when I started. I was nervous whether I could even write a novel. and It was just to show, A, I could write a novel, and B, I could create a woman who could solve her own problems. The interesting aspect of your question, in a way, is that there have been a couple of times when I've written standalone novels where V.I. hasn't appeared, and it's really helped me write about her in a more deeper, more focused way. But at one time, I thought that maybe I should try to create some other series characters, as many of my peer crime writers do. And I created a couple of other women characters and wrote short stories about them, but they never came to life for me the way she did. So I can't really answer your question except to say that there's there's an odd way in which I don't have conversations with her. Sue Grafton used to talk about Kinsey Milhone telling her when she was telling the story wrong. V.I. and I have, we keep in our separate places on our opposite sides of the computer screen. But at the same time, hers is the voice with which I can speak in the world, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. The voice, I imagine, with which you understand what you feel about the world, even as you're, you're experiencing it and you see it on the page. Exactly. So with Deadland, you're going back and forth between Chicago, which you've written uh, a lot about, and, and Kansas. And, and I'm just wondering between those two places, Lawrence, Kansas, and Chicago, how did those places influence your imagination and the stories you would later write? I left Kansas when I was 20, and Chicago became my home and has been my home ever since. I'd never planned on staying here. I always thought I would be in a more kind of glamorous capital. I saw myself in Paris or London or even New York, but it ended up being Chicago. And I have a kind of a Chicago personality. It's a shot in a beer kind of personality. So I don't think I would fit in so well in a more sophisticated city. But for a long time, I turned my back on Kansas where I grew up. But God, no, I've lived too long in some ways. The Iraq War, you're both very young, so you don't really probably remember when the U.S. invaded Iraq. I remember. I just looked deceptive. (laughs) (laughs) But it made me start thinking about Kansas because it was the kind of place that was very much gung-ho for war, invasion, anti-Muslim. And it, it made me start really digging into and exploring the world that I'd grown up in and that I was pretty ignorant about. And so I started wanting to go back there and tell stories that were set there. I wrote a standalone novel that was not wholly successful, but called Bleeding Kansas, that was trying to deal with how farm families were responding to the crisis of the time. Then a couple of my novels have sent VI to Kansas, and I've even, in a short story that's going to be published in an anthology next month in February, created a young woman who's a sheriff's deputy in the Lawrence area. I think it's particularly both places, Chicago and Lawrence, have forced you to think in particular ways about America, race, and American history and the way it's race and racism are embedded in the history. In Kansas, there's a way in which it's much clearer, cleaner cut. I don't mean clean in a good way, but it's just there if if you look for it. Whereas in Chicago, you're dealing with so many layers of politics and corruption and that it's hard to dig down and get into the, the kinds of things that you can see with a lot more clarity in a smaller 
society. I'm Jewish, which is relevant to when we moved to Kansas, I was four. And at that time, the town had restrictive covenants on where Jews and people of color could live. And they were in the mud flats along the Kansas River, which often flooded. Those houses often didn't even have indoor plumbing in the 1950s in the USA. So my parents opted to buy a house in the country, an old farmhouse. And so I grew up in farm country. They didn't farm, but that was the world that I lived in. So these racial issues were just very much there and and determined housing and a lot of things like that, that is also true in Chicago, but not so clearly seen as an outsider coming in. As you're navigating so many layers, I imagine, in Chicago, you're talking about your childhood and what I appreciated in writing in an age of silence. As I was trying to imagine, because you're so articulate and hearing you reading and putting, uh, inhabiting all these voices and even singing, then as you recount in your memoir, you, you had to take time to find your voice. Yes, that's very true. I had a friend, I did a graduate degree in history, and I had a friend in the graduate program who said when she first met me, she thought she was going deaf because I spoke so softly. She never could understand what I was saying. I think it's my brothers and I were so scared of being criticized that we all developed this kind of prison yard voice. We could mumble to each other and understand each other, but we never spoke up loudly in public. I think second wave feminism was a big help in my life. And I was very fortunate to fall in love with and marry a man who was enormously supportive of women in general and me in in particular. But I will say that I've tended to use VI as my default spokesperson, especially as I've gotten older when I was younger and more energetic. I was a lot more politically active than I am now. And now I think, well, B.I. will take care of that, or she'll talk about that. If you think that your ability to express yourself through V.I. ended up helping you express those views on your own, too, it's like V.I. was kind of like the vessel that allowed you to feel more comfortable expressing what you were thinking at the time? That's a very shrewd guess or suggestion because I I think it's absolutely on target. Yeah, I I express myself pretty strongly and then I'm taken aback when I read in print what I've said and whereas VI can say it and it's just out there for for people to deal with. Also, she's tough enough to, to deal with any backlash about it. What, what I love about her, I think that we, people have called her a role model. You know, she's at once a detective, but of course she has this experience of the law. She's like the woman we'd like to be and also is feminine and not afraid of her sexuality. So I can imagine it would be wonderful to be that way. I cannot always be so spontaneous and to the point as that. I know she says things that take the rest of us five days to think, oh, if only I'd said that. Of course, sometimes it takes me five days to have her response coming to me, but it sounds very spontaneous in the book. You've spoken and and written about different aspects of life in Chicago and, of course, also in Kansas, but corruption. I'm always curious about the research for things like that because... I know I'm privileged to do a little bit of having conversations with people who are open (laughs) and talking about their creative process, but I don't know that kind of investigative journalism, what those techniques are, how you get to those stories, because those are hidden. Well, that's where a lot of it is my imagination, what I imagine is happening, but a lot of the ideas are actually sparked by what's on, not necessarily the front page, but oftentimes in the business pages. When I wrote my first book, Stuart Kaminsky, who sadly 
died about a decade ago now, but he taught at Northwestern University in Chicago then, and I took a class in Northwestern's night school that he taught, and he was enormously helpful in helping me shape the first novel. But he suggested that she specialize in white-collar crime because at that time I worked in the financial service industry, and uh, I was with CNA Insurance, you know, that ugly red building near the Art Institute. I was on the 36th floor. My coworkers and I, we could look down on the Metropolitan Correctional Facility and we'd see the prisoners playing basketball on the roof and there we would be in our cubicle and our pantyhose. They looked so much freer than we felt. I started with insurance fraud because I was working in insurance and I wasn't an investigator, but I did a lot of support work for people in the claims department and they talked through a lot of the cases of how they had discovered and unraveled fraud and arson and things like that. So my earliest books took advantage of what I was hearing about on the job, but also just Deadland itself is set in ongoing fights in Chicago over the use of the lakefront and the Chicago Park District, which is trying to monetize the lakefront and convert part of the park in my neighborhood, Jackson Park, into a PGA golf course. Part of the Montrose Harbor Park, they would like to put up an amusement park there. So it's an ongoing fight over open parkland versus privately owned facilities that you would have to pay to get access to. So that's one of the strands that goes into this story. The other is a much more diffuse, not so grounded in a specific act, but the number of mass murders in the United States, of course, is ongoing and appalling. I don't think my life has been spared, having been part either as a victim or a friend of a victim, but I just cannot imagine what it would take to move on in your life from that experience. We're so prone as a society to say, oh, well, you know, they should just move on. We should just move on. I don't think people take into account the kind of shock and devastating, not just for that person, but generational kind of damage that's done to, to having been part of that kind of horror story. I think we keep paying lip service to the idea that resilience is this great quality, and of course it is in a way, but it's as if we expect people to be resilient without changing the social norms that are doing damage, whether that is mass murder, letting people wander around with assault weapons in shops and malls and the Michigan State House, or whether it's systemic racism, both the big insults and the microaggressions. People are supposed to just be resilient and rise above it. There comes a point at which there's so much rubble in your life, how can you possibly rise above it. Sorry, I'm on a soapbox and I'll get off that, but it's my effort to try to show the reality of having to cope with that kind of violence would be. Hello to all the listeners. I hope you're enjoying this podcast as much as I did while editing. I am Lillian Liu and a current business student at Virginia Tech. I would like to share some words with our listeners. This is actually my first time hearing about Sarah Presky and seeing her work. So I just want to say, first off, congratulations on getting a new fan, Sarah Presky. I am pleased to see your previous work and excited to read everything else you have in store for us. I have great hopes now that I've just listened to your reading performance. It was great, 
and you have such a great active voice filled with each individual feeling, tone for the characters. Going off on what you said, I really enjoy the honesty of your responses. You mentioned you were nervous when you first started, and I resonated with those words. I was nervous and unsure when I first started out writing my blog and working on the podcast journey. It seemed out of character by my friends and peers, and even by myself too. But it was a new step that I truly appreciate and enjoy still today. Whenever I'm in my own creative process zone, whether it's podcasting or writing about anything, I am nervous. I've done so much writing from school, meals, uh, money problems, life things, that I would just assume I just don't get that anxious feeling anymore. However, I still do. And right now, I'm okay with it. I now love that feeling and the satisfying feeling after I am about to complete a piece or right before I hit the submit upload button. So your comment was a humble and honest response. You also connected your stories with Chicago and Kansas in your writing and your work. I haven't been to Chicago and Kansas, but I would love to someday. But that's the power of traveling and living in a new place. Your eyes will shine brighter and with new stories and new visions, you can share them with yourself, family, friends, readers, and listeners. So no matter where you are in this world, the sharing experience is one of the best parts. Personally, I am not the biggest fan of social media and other platforms, but I am thankful for the connecting aspect. I love my two active platforms, Medium and Anchor. I can post on my Medium blog about my college life, the ups and downs of my own experiences, and I can record with friends or just by myself on my current situation at home or away from home. I can share my honest and no-filter truth. The sharing process excites and attracts us all, and I hope you guys can keep enjoying this process. So thank you to the creative process and Sarah Presky for allowing me this opportunity to add to this already beautiful work of art. Well, you said soapbox, but that's what we love, your passion. That's why we followed B.I. Warshawski for 20 novels. And you have people who've like read every single one of those novels <laughs> because you're talking about we need to have space uh, to heal and your novels, which look at these difficult situations and societal problems, help us understand and heal. I'm thinking now of you're talking about memory and resilience, and that's something that BI deals with through the memories of things that happened and that you have also we talked about World War II, things that didn't happen directly through her, but as you say, they can't be left behind and mm -hmm. they leave this trace. I'm thinking of uh, the novel Critical Mass that mm -hmm. seems, it's a little bit different than many of your novels. Tell us, because you were speaking about your husband, Courtney, right? Tell us a little bit about the genesis of that novel and the research process and what went into it. Well, it's a, the end of the quest for the heart of the atom is the bomb. So it's a quest that has a really unhappy ending. But the quest itself seemed to me to be one of the great adventure stories of human beings trying to solve a problem. So I so wanted to tell the story. My husband was a protege of Enrico Fermi. He brought him to the University of Chicago in 1949. And I met a lot of the people who worked on the Manhattan Project in, in their old age. And I really wanted to write a story about them, but it was a long time before the right 
kind of story idea came to me. And it came to me, there was a woman physicist in Austria named Marietta Blau, who I read about her in an article in one of my husband's physics magazines. And she was a very gifted physicist. Einstein thought highly of her and nominated her for the Nobel Prize, which didn't happen. But uh, he also was able to rescue her and got her out of Austria kind of at the last possible minute. So there were a lot of women who were involved in the quest for the atom, for the heart of the atom. And when I read Marietta Blau's history, it just, it really struck a chord with me. Then I started imagining different storylines, and that also took a while because the work that she did was actually replicated by a British scientist, a man, 20 years later, and he was awarded the Nobel Prize for it. It's clear from the historical record that he knew her work, but he never credited her research in any of his public remarks. My first imagining was that Marietta Blau, I called her Martina Saganor in my book, that her children would murder him because they were so annoyed with him for stealing their mother's work. And I thought, well, that's not really a novel. That's just a revenge fantasy. It took a while to come up with with a big storyline, but it, it was one of the books that I feel I was most successful in writing because all of my plots end up being a little ludicrous and critical mass is no exception, but... I, the writing about Martina, my character, I love the idea of light. When the young poet Amanda Gorman ended the Biden inaugural poem with being in the light, it really struck a chord with me. I'm going to indulge myself with reading the end of Martina survives the war. She survives all the vicissitudes. I mean, she's been in one of the Nazi labor camps. She gets away, and the whole the book is partly about that. But at the end of her life, she knows the January air is cold, but her bulky coat gets in her way when she's making adjustments to the lenses. She doesn't shiver as she unwraps her telescope. It's as if she were 18 again on the Wildspitze, embracing the glacier water. The heavens lie open above her, and her heart, that aged frail muscle, stirs as it always has at the purity of light. Benjamin had said to her on their last night in Göttingen, You are not human, Martina. One does not lie with a lover to talk about spectral lines. One seeks the comfort afforded by our human bodies. It's as if you have no feelings in you. I was never a cold person, Benjamin, she says tonight. Like many old people who live alone, she doesn't realize she's thinking out loud. But my passions were too intense for you. I thought you shared my longing for the harmonies. I thought with you I might find the place where the music is so pure that the sound itself could ravage you if it didn't first shatter your mind. These bodies, yes, we live inside these bodies and must tend to them. But I wanted to be inside the numbers, inside the function where it approaches the limit. I long for the stars. I know their redshift and their spectral lines, but I don't want to describe them. I want to be inside the light. She's weeping now, her tears turning to ice crystals on her lashes. And then, because it seems the most natural thing in the world, she unbuttons her jacket and her shirt and lies on the deck, opening her arms to the heavens. It's where I want to be, but I'm not the kind of writer who often gets to that place. So Martina's voice was a chance for me to try to experience that place.
It's very moving. And I, I was curious about a number of things because I know you've got to meet some people from the Manhattan Project. And the other thing is that I don't mean to ask personal questions because I know your husband was a physicist. And I imagined as you were reading that, I imagined the kind of conversations you might also have, how he described these mysteries. I find it very mysterious. I still can't get my head around it. But sorry to ask personal questions, but it just came across as you were reading. Ask anything. I, I enjoyed that. And I, I saw a, a, there was a lunch, I guess there was a lunch before he passed. And I, I was very moved by this kind of whole story of your life together. And if I may say, in, and also he was a person of courage, as I understand, in World War II. And I don't know if you'd like to talk about that. It just came across as you were reading maybe some um, memory of things. Courtney had three jobs in his life. When he was 18, he, he was Canadian. He had a job as a cook for the Canadian Geological Society, and he was fired because he didn't get up early enough to make them breakfast. Then he was in the British Navy during the Second World War, and then he taught at the University of Chicago for 50 years. He wanted to sign up as soon as war was declared. He just turned 16, and his mother said no, he had to go to university. And so he went and did his degree in two years because he just felt he needed to be part of the Navy. Then he ended up just uh, the luck of the draw being assigned as the radar signal officer to the ship that brought Eisenhower to Normandy on uh, D-Day plus one. He was part of that expedition. I was very proud of his service, but I think he always was just a person who had such a good sense of himself that he could take risks that other people maybe were too chicken to take. And I'd, some were physical, but more were like, I mean, he obviously was quite a bit older than me, but he, he was the person that if foreign students were having visa troubles or something like that, he was the person they would go to because they knew that he had connections through his work to the Department of Defense and therefore was willing to use those connections to help people in trouble. Even in his old age, he still was willing to go to bat for anyone who was in trouble at a personal level. He was a, an outspoken advocate for women's reproductive health. This was before I knew him and had nothing to do with me. It had to do with his personal convictions and passions on human dignity. He was a person who never worried about what anyone thought of him. I have VI who speaks up, but I'm much more of a nervous cautious person than Courtney ever was. He really was kind of a model for me. Well, I'm sure you're modest about that, but it's interesting. You observe and find courage in your observation or channeling people, but I think it's in you too. So I, I can't believe that you can write as many books as you have about that. That's a wonderful act of ventriloquism. If that's the case, I think it's in you. I want to leave a space because I know that Taya is very shy, but she's very curious. and She's very fascinated in travel and world cultures just come in and jump in and ask what came first vi warshawski or your desire to become a writer or your love for writing i'm curious what the trajectory of that was i'd been writing really my whole life since i was seven or eight years old i'd started writing stories then but kind of the time the place in the year where i grew up i never imagined that i had something to say, sort of writing outside the home, so to speak. But I did keep writing less and less as I went through my 20s, but still kept writing little things, little poems, short stories. They will be in my posthumous words. The desire to write or just the using writing to deal with feelings, events, that was just 
always part of me. It was a big leap, though, to try to actually write a novel and to try to imagine that it would be published. The writing definitely came first, but... So when I wrote the first novel, it was like, okay, I was going to make it as easy as possible. I had a crime set in the insurance industry so that I didn't have to research the crime. And then I sort of slavishly followed the conventions of the hard-boiled form. You know, I'm sitting with Raymond Chandler open on my lap and Philip Marlowe gets beaten up a third of the way through the book. So V.I. gets stuff that now when I look back on, I wish I'd, I had been more courageous and kind of created her less in that stereotypical mold. Because, for instance, one of the things is the hard-boiled detective is a loner. V.I. is not a loner. She has a network of friends and connections that grew up organically around her as I was writing. But I killed off her parents, and I didn't give her siblings. And the cousin that she's very close to, he's dead already when the series opens. If I'd had the ability to think it through more carefully, I would have left her family intact. And that would have created more... Like, she very much idealizes her mother, but of course, if her mother was alive, they'd have conflict because mothers and daughters do even when they adore each other. Do you actually mean you would prefer her mother to be alive as a plot? Because I like that. Sorry, I I might have missed her. That's okay. No, I like it too. I like the way that Gabriella and also her father, Gabriella more, but her father is so much always in her thoughts. I think it works well, but I think it would have given maybe a... now I'm not going to be able to come up with the names, but some younger, young crime writers today who have left their families intact. And there's a lot of interesting family dynamic that I think makes their books very rich. Yeah, but you have also this surrogate family with Lottie Herschel and Mr. Contreras. They, they are the living members of them. Then you mentioned Boom Boom or other we've seen through different books. So he has, she has this wider family. So I like that dynamic. That's good. Because they come, they come back, the book that I'm struggling, I'm late finishing, and I think the COVID lockdown has made it really hard for me to focus and work in a concentrated way. So I've never been late yeah. with a, delivering a manuscript before, except once when I was badly injured in a car wreck. And so it's very it's upsetting to, to still be behind schedule, but there I am. Oh. But um, well, that's interesting because maybe I think that you've always been incorporating contemporary elements and this is a very unusual contemporary element. I don't know how it appears. Is it appear? I mean, you have to digest it. And well, I think the one thing is we have to also pay attention to it because you just know it's not going to come again for what we Well, exactly. You know, I was starting a book just when the lockdown started and things were changing so fast and I couldn't, and the book was actually, the book is actually partly set in the world of medical fraud. And so trying to keep up, I made a lot of false starts. And as it became clear over the summer that we were in this for the long haul, the pandemic is there, but it's in a way in the background, like who's wearing a mask. So you're absolutely right. But it took a while to for that to to gel. Also, there have been so many things happening from the insurrection, from Black Lives Matter, from, so I just sort of feel like you do have to stop and pay attention because you just want to make sure you're doing your best to bear witness and not be insular. I imagine that happens too with any creative process. Yes, I think that's right too. There's definitely been a lot to process, I feel like in general this year and taking a step back in the actually processing it could in a way like spark inspiration too is what I found. You're at DePaul are you an undergraduate a graduate student? 
I'm an undergraduate student. I'm a junior. What are you studying? I'm studying communication in Spanish. I'm not too sure what awaits me after. Well, I think this would be (laughs) one of the most uncertain times to know what awaits you. Right. I feel like it makes sense that a lot of things this year were kind of different. It was hard even like especially to concentrate at school and universities. I was wondering in general, besides these chaotic years, this chaotic year specifically, what challenges have you found within your own writing processes that have stuck out to you the most to be in a way like transformatory? I know that writing novels, I can't imagine how how difficult that must be to create a plot line and a storyline and characterize all these people and form these relationships. Hmm. Um, Not sure that I can really answer that question. I feel like I haven't been transformed enough in my life. But one thing that most of the writers I know agree is, is that what you learn from writing a book is how to write that particular book When you're starting out, you think that there's some magic that you'll master how to write a book, and you never really master how to write a novel. When I wrote the first several novels, maybe the first five, I want to say, I'm not someone who outlines because I put characters in motion, and that affects the story arc. Something that I think I'm going to write ends up not working because the characters in motion make it impossible or implausible. I've always done a lot of writing, discarding, writing, discarding. My first four or five books, I had a very clear central action that would be at the halfway mark of the text. All the action and all the plot strands would rise to that point. Then each one would be tied off, falling away from that. The first book that I wrote where I couldn't see the ending terrified me. I had to trust my craft to get me to the ending. Then that became like, okay, it's happened. I can do this again. But each time, it's not clear that it will happen again. My books are not like, say, Agatha Christie is the queen of plot-driven books where the detective solves it and explains everything in retrospect. My books depend more on juggling, so the hand has to be quicker than the eye. And I have one main storyline, and to distract you from focusing on that, I have other storylines. They help enrich the story, bring in more characters, and they also help create suspense for the reader. In this COVID year, I am having trouble with my richer storylines and it's been very frightening to me because I've wondered if I've lost my art and my craft which I think of as two different things. I was thinking of that too with this issue of resilience. I I will say that I'm very aware that I live a privileged life but I live a life that's very much alone. I think my own resilience has been challenged. I wrote Deadland in the year after Courtney died. I managed to do that, but I'm not sure how many times I can be challenged. So I have passage in the book that I'm writing that I'm going to, I'm really being very vain in how I'm. Not at all. We're fascinating. Are we the first ones to hear it? I would love to hear. So 
Vi is always conscious of the fact that she that it's easy to be under surveillance, and she's talking to Lottie, and Lottie says, "Never mind what the issue is because it's too complicated to explain." But Lottie was silent for a minute. As a society, we focus on a nebulous concept we call resilience, as if the ability to keep going when your life has been burned to rubble around you just bestowed special merit on you. But at some time, at some point, when everything is reduced to rubble too many times, even the most resilient person can retreat in despair. Then VI has gotten involved with trying to help this very elderly couple who are patients of Lottie. And Lottie says, please do your best not to frighten the Pradientes. Wait until you're sure that this Ronigan is really threatening them before you get them too alarmed. Especially Emilio, he is more fragile than Alona. And then it goes on from there. But it's just because, and that's another thing, this book has a lot more kind of personal asides like that in it. I think, is that going to bore the reader? But I'll leave them in for now. And then my London editor is very good at telling me when things are too verbose and cut them back. That's great. It's interesting that your London editor is your ear and obviously the rhythms of Chicago and well of course some of the characters are then they're not from Chicago directly but it's funny that an outsider can kind of hear some things or yeah. maybe be um, more surgical. Or, in, in yes that, that could be right. Also publishing is a very it used to be a more leisurely business but it's in the world of conglomerates now so you're lucky if you have an editor for more than one book and my London editor has been with me since 2000 so there's a real relationship there that's been harder to sustain on the American side of the equation. I was very interested in how you described those threads or how you visualize the complex plot lines or the the coinciding stories but I think you're talking about rhythms and you're talking about the music of it I just think that the music and the rhythm of this last year has just been different. I think that we have to, as artists, I'm also an artist, and I have a bit of writing, so I, we have to be receptive to that new sound and that new rhythm because mm-hmm. we wouldn't want to, I would say, because you're always going for, you do have these plot lines that may be exaggerated from life, but ultimately you're a mirror to life. You're putting that up. So I think that we have to be honest in it. I think that people as much... You were referencing Amanda Gorman's poem. I know you wrote poetry when you were younger, writing short stories. Certain times require a quiet or smaller interactions. I think it's normal. I think that people also want to read reflections of that too. Personally, <laughs> I'm theorizing. I personally really enjoyed the line that said, even the most resilient person can retreat in despair. I wrote it down because I was like, wow, that's just very accurate. I feel like that could spark a lot of self-reflection in readers too, like these comments on resilience and the issues that come along with it. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, (laughs) Tia. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs, but I live in Chicago to go to DePaul. I was reading on your website that you moved to Chicago in the 1960s uh, during the civil rights movement. I was wondering how you have witnessed Chicago change from when you moved and then until today. When I moved here, Chicago is infamously known as the most 
segregated city in America. I don't know if that's true, but it certainly could be in the top five. When I moved here, that segregation was essentially legally enforced. And I came the summer of 1966. The civil rights movement in Chicago could not budge then Mayor Daley on any of things like restrictive covenants or employment, public employment being shut off to African-Americans. Or It used to be that Marshall Fields, our great department store, which no longer exists, but that African-Americans could only shop in the bargain basement. They weren't allowed in the upper floors of the store. It was sort of shocking to me because Chicago is the North, and I grew up thinking, well, the North, South is segregated, but not the North. It was a rude awakening, but they asked, they begged the local leadership, begged King to come to Chicago because where he was, there would be television cameras, and they wanted to shame the city council into into taking action. To some extent, that did happen, and they were looking for college volunteers to be embedded in the communities and do whatever was asked of us. I volunteered and was brought here and was actually assigned to what was then a a white neighborhood, mostly Polish and Lithuanian immigrants or descendants of Polish and Lithuanian immigrants just south of the stockyards. We kind of were running a day camp for kids 6 to 11. It was kind of soft propaganda on different ways to live in a diverse city that didn't involve throwing rocks at people. Gosh, am I glad it was just rocks and not people didn't have weapons the way they do now. But anyway, a a lot of the most violent confrontations and riots took place in and around the neighborhood that I had been assigned to. It was quite an extraordinary education and eye-opening and so on. One of the big differences between then and now is that city jobs opened up to people of color. In fact, they now are almost exclusively held by people of color, which is another form of segregation. But nonetheless, and the housing covenants are gone, but it's still very hard. A good friend of mine who's African-American was living in what's supposed to be a racially diverse neighborhood on the north side, but she just experienced so many microaggressions as a black person there that she moved to what's a less safe neighborhood from a crime standpoint, but more safe from a microaggression standpoint. It just was too stressful to be in that neighborhood. So there's still a big distance to travel, I think, but also the willingness to travel that distance feels like it's really increased in a way that it it ha- in the 50 intervening years, I'm not a person prone to optimism, but when I saw the reaction of, of the people your age, Taya, to like the Black Lives Matter movement or the George Floyd murder, it's like, wow, you are so much more aware and willing to em- embrace the problems and make change. It makes me sad to know that I will probably die without seeing great change, but that change is happening. I, I do feel, despite the morons in the Michigan State House or the terrible thugs invading the Capitol, their day, they did not succeed and their day is waning. I, I really feel confident about that. I feel confident in your generation really being able to triumph over some of these problems. And you'll deal with climate change and all these other things too. So thank you, Taya.
That's, no. I'm glad that you're, yes, thank you. And thank that is, we're putting all our hope on you. No <laughs> all pressure. Our, all our on you. <laughs> well, you know, it's, oh my. no, no, but, no pressure. I mean, we want you to solve it soon. <laughs> attitudes in the country. It does make me feel good to see your generation. It's always only a handful of people of any generation who are really act, acting like people make mock the boomer generation, my generation. But it was only a handful of people in my generation who were acting on social or racial or feminist or whatever. Most people just want to live their lives. Everybody should have a right to just live their lives. But if well- Sorry, we should honor, you mentioned some things, but you didn't you go so much in depth in terms of abortion rights and a number of things you are quite, you were, I think you are very involved and very uh, outspoken. You are an example to us about how we can speak up to for what we believe in and have respect for, our, say, feminism, women's rights and the rights of, of all. I wondered, because this issue of in, in Chicago, I don't understand it as well as I might if I was there. Did you have ideas about how, in terms of uh, racial divides, is it something in terms of the education system or how we might improve these systems? My personal take is that economic justice has to come first. I was listening to Isabel Wilkerson, who wrote Cast and The Warmth of Other Sons. I listened to a talk she gave on Zoom last week, and she was making the point that at current rates of ownership, it would be 240 years before Black Americans had economic parity with white Americans. The systems are, I knew something about U.S. history and racial history, but I have to say the last two years have just been a huge education in my life. I feel like I'm starting over again from ground near zero. And it really started when I went to the Museum of African History and Culture, I think it's called, I never get the name quite right, in, in D.C., two year, oh, a year and a half, two years ago. Anyway, I have to say the exhibit that has stayed with me as a kind of a shocker and wake-up call is had to do with banks and banking. In the pre-Civil War South, banks issued currency that was backed by human bodies. So you got a $10 bill from the bank and it would say like backed by one adult human, I mean, one slave, one child, one woman, one man, whatever the denomination of the currency was, that was the number of bodies that they felt equaled the value of that currency. It just made it so clear that every aspect of society, it wasn't just enslaved people working on plantations or wherever they were working, but that every aspect of the economic aspect of the society, slavery was so embedded in it that you couldn't untangle it. At the same time, the North profited by slavery because all the raw materials that fed both northern factories and international trade were, raw materials were cheap because you didn't have to pay for labor. Those systems just carried on after emancipation. You have the federal government backing creating redlining. It's created by the federal government. That was like, ah! So my first job in the financial sector was with CNA Insurance. The first day on the job, they said, well, you can get cheaper insurance through the company. Then they wouldn't insure me because I live on the south side, which is predominantly black. I said, well, you know, that's redlining and that's against the law. And they said, 
yeah, we know, so what? And, you know, I think a more moral person might have quit, but I didn't. So the inability to get mortgages, to be denied the access to property ownership, goes back essentially to emancipation. So you have these tremendous systems of inequality, and until you have financial equality, economic equality, I don't see how there are other issues. Like if you're a black child, male, you have a greater chance of either being killed or in prison than you do of graduating from high school. So why would you bother to go to school if your trajectory is to death or prison? One of the novels I wrote, uh, Hard Time, was set in the world of private prisons, which are even worse than publicly owned prisons. But I went to, I pretended, I have a friend who had a PR agency and she gave me credentials so that I could go and I pretended I wanted to write up their private prison meetings for some magazine. They track literacy rates of black boys and project, they know what fraction of eight-year-old black boys are not learning to read on schedule. Those are the ones who are going to end up in prison. So they project the prison cells are going to build these private prison companies based on how they're tracking literacy. So I'm not fond of the catchphrase defund the police because I think you need to rethink the police. And definitely in Chicago, the history is just full of one shocking story after another. But you really need to rethink the police and rethink what it is that your expectation is for a a child, particularly a male child of color. If you deal with the issues of law enforcement and the issues of economic parity, take those on. You can handle those. I know you can. Yes. But uh, that's just my personal view. But I have a lot to learn and I'm studying. No, we can know, but you have the courage to go undercover as a, as a, and actually see what it is in practice. And then you share that with us through your novels, which is then an entertainment, but it's an one that educates us and makes us really question those systems. Yeah, I'm not sure if also personally defund the police scares people. And I've done interviews with people who actually say abolish prisons, but I just don't see that happening. But the system does need to to change. And so thank you for, you know, enlightening us about this and the plight of homeless people or just on so many levels or what happens to, to, to veterans when they return. Or it's just been, your novels have been a series of extended acts of compassion that really open our eyes. Thank you. That's it's such a generous assessment. I'm a person who's insecure and struggling, but I'm glad that my struggles help other people in their struggles, I guess. I guess that's how I feel about it. Oh, it's more. And also with struggle, you this sense this ongoing, the family you've created through your novels as well. So no, it really, and with humor. So please, please don't ever doubt that's that. So I, we've covered so many things and you've given us many things to think about, of course, in your novels. But I guess in closing, as we try to imagine a a better tomorrow and you think to the future, the importance of the arts and the kind of world we're leaving uh, for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, remember? I think the great power of being young is being willing to jump off the high dive. It's not always true that as you get older, you get more cautious, but it usually is true. I'm a technology tourist, not a native or early adapter. So a lot of art that is, a lot of the online video multimedia art, I I think is wonderful. It's 
beyond me, but it's it comes out of this this willingness to take risks. And I, I want to see young people take risks, take chances. It's a hard time financially, economically for the generation that's kind of late teens through mid-late 20s. This is a terrible, this economic time is a terrible time. Of course, you need to make a living, but make room, make space in your life to take those chances and just go where the muse takes you because it's like physics and poetry and music are young people's games and you don't come to them, you don't usually come to them in middle age or old age with a lot of creativity. You do it when you're young and not afraid of consequences. If I had a daughter, I would just be wanting her to be out there experimenting, experiencing taking chances. I think that a lot of people need to hear that. Thank you for that. Especially like my generation growing up, there is a lot of pressure to stick to the thing that is going to be the most stable in the long run. Especially nowadays, it's hard to find stable jobs. But I think that that's besides the point of living for yourself in a creative way, especially being able to express yourself in that creative way. I feel like how we internally feel isn't expressed then almost in a way is preventing it from being exposed to other people and from other people like feeling the same way and being inspired by that too Mm -hmm. so thank you for that thank you for your insights and thank you Sarah Paretsky for giving us in VR Warshawski an ongoing portrait of courage and commitment to social justice your nuanced lens on feminism and detective fiction and your evolving tapestry of the city of Chicago thank you for adding your voice to the creative process Thank you, Mia. Thank you, Taya. Taya, I'd be very eager to see what you do next. So let me know. Okay. My email's on my website. Oh, yes. Okay. I'll send it to you and I'll send it to you when I'm finished with the portrait. And just to explain, I'm not in Michigan. I'm in Paris, but we, I share that with a team <laughs> member in Michigan. It confuses people. It's, I'm not Michelle. But thank you so much. And we look forward. I don't know what is the name of your next book or if you've titled it. I don't it. either. Right now it's called Book 23. Oh, <laughs> it could be intriguing, but I'll look for whatever. Look, 23. I cannot <laughs> even imagine. <laughs> the Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Lushowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Lillian Liu. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcast, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.